0: Dude. Bourbon and Beyond, this September in Louisville, Kentucky, with Bruno Mars, Don't me, just The Killers, the
1: Black Keys, oh, oh, oh. Brandi Carlisle, plus brand Duran, Duran Duran, Billy Strings, so Black Crows, so The Avett
0: Brothers, Blondie, and so many more. Bourbon and Beyond, we September 14th through 17th me. in Louisville, Kentucky. All passes on sale now at bourbonandbeyond.com.
1: Don't go to sleep, motherfucker! Don't go to sleep. And do me a favor. Don't disturb my friend. He's dead tired.
2: Well, what the hell are you saying, Doss? You bruised half your body sleeping. I I sleep pretty hard.
0: Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. Hey, it's Brian, and hey, it is Murdoch. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. Oh,
2: man. I'm just—that's happening because uh, we got to settle in. We got—we got a lot to talk about today, and I, you know, I feel like go ahead and crack one open. And let's talk about the band. The Americana Institution referred to as the band. The the fourth of the five core members uh, officially left the earth last week. Jamie Royal Robertson. Uh, he just turned eighty. You realize his birthday was last month?
0: He got married recently. Yeah, very recently. Like this this year, but he was they were together last year.
2: Yeah, Um, so that's
0: that's new. So he wasn't planning on going anywhere, but
2: I mean, he did. He had a form of cancer, I believe, and just didn't really didn't publicize it at all
0: Uh, for a while. I thought, yeah, it was a while. I forget what kind, but he had it. Are are we surprised
2: that Garth Hudson is the last one? I'm not. I I feel like we should have seen that coming. Garth was going to outlive all of them.
0: I I guess so. I kind of. I guess everybody else. You know, Garth
2: Hudson narcoleptic. Like that's an actual thing. And Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. And if you read
2: much about... We'll talk about Robbie's book, Testimony, which informs this episode quite a bit. And then, of course, they made a documentary based on the book as well. He talks about Garth, but anytime Garth is in the story, he is presented sort of as this Buddha-esque straight arrow who just happens to be along for the ride but is like fiddling with instruments. Like you just look over and he's like Maurice from Beauty and the Beast. He's just in his workshop like making an accordion sound like a mandolin or some shit. Like he's not, he's just always like offering one sentence assessments of things and, and mostly sticking to himself. But anyway, that's not who we're here to talk about. Well, we are sort of. We want to talk about the whole band. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, Robbie outlived most of them. Uh Rick Danko uh, died in the late nineties. Richard Manuel, of course, in the mid eighties. Levon Helm in two thousand twelve. Robbie, the most controversial of the
0: five, right? Yeah, I mean, he is—he's the most well known, I'd say, for for a couple reasons. And he has he had his own solo work. And if some people don't know, there is a lot of movie stuff that he did that kind of aligns him with Scorsese. That kind of—I mean, he's in the fabric of music and art more than some people. No.
2: Well, and, and so, you know, this movie, uh, Killers of the Flower Moon, that we're finally going to get to see by the end of the year, I believe, this new Scorsese, this uh-huh. is his last big work. So, Robbie did the score for that. So, we're going to get to hear more of Robbie's work very soon.
0: Yeah, and there's, and there's the other thing that's more infamous about Robbie. Well, right? What, that he's an asshole? Yeah, and I mean, we're talking about a guy that's deceased. But, yeah, so, that's a thing, that he was like, he was not the nicest guy of the guys that were in the band,
2: it's it's an interesting story cuz i'm just going to i'm just going to jump in and say is it because he was on the least amount of drugs outside of maybe garth i mean it depends on whose version of the story you're going to listen to right and who's telling the story but there is a case to be made if you sort of skim around the surface that what was these guys died in the order of their drug abuse i mean they really did. I mean, Richard. By the end, Richard was a giant liability, and he, of course, will die by his own hand in the mid '80s, which we won't really talk mm-hmm. about, but it is an important thing to know as we dig into this story. Daco's like a heart attack in his '50s, right? Yeah. I think, and then Levon, it's it's cancer, but it doesn't get him until 2012, so he lives a lot longer. And and you know, the joke is that you know Robbie and Garth were the straightest of the arrows. Now Robbie will say, and he will say publicly, and he will say in his memoir that he definitely, it wasn't that he didn't do drugs. He just got into less of the severe, uh, you know, types of drugs. He was he was definitely doing stuff. But here here is, so just digging around on message boards, right? Like, so, so there's different layers of the research we do for the show. Sure. I'm sure you've done this, too, in the aftermath of his passing, where you're looking at different things, right? So there's, like, the obligatory obituaries, and there's the articles, and there's the think pieces, and then you get into the message boards that, you know, go way back, and... Yeah, I mean, that's... The the talk on the message boards is... The short answer for anything is that Robbie Robertson was an asshole. And here's an example of what I'm talking about. This is from a random posting on a message board I found. This is just one I picked at random because sure. it was funny. Uh, this is a person say, who says, I met Kinky Friedman, which I don't have time to explain who Kinky Friedman is, but... <laughs> This is funnier if you know who Kinky Friedman is. I met Kinky Friedman before a show a few years back. We have a mutual friend, so I introduced myself, and we had a great conversation. And somewhere in the middle of the discussion, he notices my T-shirt, which had a cover of the basement tapes on it, and he said, I love those guys, except for that dickhead, and pointed at Robbie. So, like, this is the stuff that just exists on the Internet about poor Robbie Robertson. But let's come back to that. I want to talk about a larger issue here that I struggle with when talking about the band, which is how to explain or quantify the influence that these guys
0: had on popular music. Yeah. And you know, if we're just talking about Robbie, they're like in the room, like in the most important moments in rock history, all of them. Like, the, and,
2: it's he, They're the forest Gump. I mean, Robbie in particular. Right. When he's talking, Gump, it, that's <laughs> what
0: you, That's where I needed to get to. He's so everyone understands. Of rock and roll, that's what Robbie Robertson <laughs> is the forest Gump of rock and rock and roll because I, he's kind of everywhere except. I mean, Forrest had a pretty good sense of humor about how life treated him. Robbie got a shit sandwich once he figured out like the truth about his growing up and like his dad and like, Things that would have made me into a yeah, prickly pear a lot more of, so than a a lot I was. There's a lot of really interesting stuff buried
2: in his childhood, which yeah. we we can touch on. But I just let's do this experiment, right? Like you just said, like he's in the room for everything. He's the Forrest Gump of rock and roll. Like we can do this just within the confines of rock and roll bedtime stories. So if you're a long right, our show, if, yeah, let's just talk about our show. If, if you're a longtime <laughs> fan of the show, let me just walk you through a handful <laughs> of these examples, right? So let's pick an episode. Let's say episode 81, which is about the day the music died. Now zoom out in a buddy Holly crowd from around that time period. And you might see at one of those, shows he was doing getting jumping from place to place on an airplane. You might see Robbie Robertson as a teenager slinking up to the side of the stage and trying to get some guitar tone advice from Buddy. This is mm-hmm. a, according to Robbie happened where he, yeah. one of the first people he asked about how to get a guitar to sound a certain way, which becomes a big thing for him, is is Buddy Holly himself Buddy when he's Holly. a teenager. Now, let's just move to episode 83. Let's talk about Tommy James and the mob You zoom in on a moment anytime in that episode because most of it takes place in Morris Levy's office at Roulette Records and Waiting out in the hallway, good chance that you've got Robbie Robertson and Ronnie Hawkins just we're just waiting out at the Roulette Records lobby as something is going on in Morris Levy's room,
0: right? Like this is the, this is how it works, right? And he's a very kinky girl because in episode one fourteen about Rick James, <laughs> guys, it's because his bandmates Levon and Garth are said to be the ones that bail Rick out of a street fight when he arrives in Canada. of course,
2: (laughs) he is around
0: Dylan when the motorcycle accident happens. And we talked about that in episode 93. Thanks for listening for us recapping Forrest Gump, (laughs) AKA Robbie Robertson being in all of this. And when you move outside of the context of this show, the stories can actually get more ridiculous. Yeah, and you
2: know, we I've already mentioned testimony, the the 2016 memoir, and it is it literally it's chronological. And t- at a certain point, you're just like calling bullshit because he literally is like, and then I walked in a room and major moment in music history like happens in front of him. Right? There's like the time where he's like, someone invites him down to the studio, and Ray Charles is in there. And Ray Charles has a is like freaking out on drugs, and there's this whole thing he sees just as like you know. He just happens to be in the room when it happens. Like this happens over and over and over. But besides claiming to be around for the most of the big moments in rock history, Robbie also claims to have written most of the songs from the band. And and this is what this one of the things he becomes known for and why he becomes known for being sort of an asshole. It has to do with songwriting. And this is we have a letter that's going to sort of send us down this path. Why don't you read that?
0: Yeah. And we normally talk about the letter right at the top. But Patty, I'm sorry, we're getting to it right now. Here's the letter from Patty. Guys, can you untangle the truth around the band and Robbie Robertson and the long running feud about who actually wrote those songs? Thanks. Love the show. Patty L. Thanks, Patty, for your letter.
2: Now, Patty, I'll be truthful with you. The band episode of the show, Murdoch knows and he's not selling me up the river. It has been on the schedule for at least half, at least half a year. <laughs> like I mean, yeah. it's literally been. We say that loosely sometimes. This one's literally been on the schedule and just moved down week after week since I think late December, and it, it's partly because it is pretty intimidating to try to put the scope of the band into a digestible, listenable episode.
0: Uh, our yeah, pro- and it and it's the band. It's
2: the band, and what's really funny is, well, I mean, you know, we'll talk about this, but they they're sort of musicians musicians right and they knew that they were even sort of referred to that when when it was happening right Like these are the guys that musicians are listening to maybe not everybody else but have you had any instances in the past week where you've been talking about robbie robertson and you've had to explain to someone that you were talking about the band not just a band when you said he was in the band
0: uh yeah right (laughs) it's because some people some people don't know some people have never seen the last waltz yeah. Like they, the historical significance of the band is there's generational things where where people don't know, and for being a, a band, sorry, I keep having to say the band in there. That's the band is the name of the band, right? See what I did there? It's not like you can go. They have that song, Rock and Roll All Night, or right? They have right? Right? Like, no, like it's not. It's 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 totally not the, it's different. not the singular songs. It's the effect right. of all of the songs, really. And yes, because. Classic rock radio did not destroy and burn these songs into people's people's brains as much as everything else. So
2: our producer Leif asked this question rhetorically this week, which I thought was good is is the band the most influential band in the history of rock and roll behind the Beatles?
0: And when i I used to hear this when I was younger, and it would get me so pissed off because I'd always hear the same thing when people would be like, "You know, Aces, they're like new, but they're better than the Beatles." And I'd be like, <laughs> "Who the hell's the band?" And they had no like big hit songs. that always annoyed the hell out of me, and then uh, you know, once you get to take a big step back and look around at everything that's uh in the perimeter of it, it's like, well. What's the significance here? Well, it's very interesting what the significance is of of this group.
2: Well, it, sure. and I I wouldn't put them above the Beatles, and I don't think Leif would either. I I think in that conversation you hell also to the no? Can you can all just say right right, to right 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 right, but you yeah. also have. You know, you have the Stones, incredibly influential that you I think have to be mentioned. Elvis, incredibly. I mean, so there's these like give me's right. But his point is, especially in terms of a band that affects other musicians and changes the course of history without people Mm. realizing it, without the average listener realizing it. And we'll get through a list at some point in in here. I'm sure we'll talk about all the people who literally like there are there are some major players who quit bands after they heard the band and said. I'm just going to start a different band because I don't want to sound like this anymore and I want to sound like that. That actually happened. So I, here's what I thought though. Because this is overwhelming, here's a unique way to talk about their influence on other musicians. Let's look at the songs that have not been written by them because you just pointed out. You know, they haven't been killed to death on, on radio. Oh, yeah. So you know them up on Cripple yes. Creek, uh, The Weight. I mean, there's definitely songs you know. But let's talk yeah. not just about the songs they inspired. Let's talk about the songs that have been written
0: about them yeah which is kind of stunning when you think about it so uh leave on by elton john oh, what a song i wish i remembered the name of the accounts payable lady at the radio station i worked at denver <laughs> she was so cute and she used to just sing it to me all the time for no reason uh so okay let's you keep look going. like Richard, a leave on honey she, she would just just i would go into the office and she would just start singing it like i was him i don't know um <laughs> Isaac Gillespie had a song called Richard Manuel, The Pacifier. Mm -hmm. Clapton had a song called Holy Mother that was about Richard Manuel. Counting Crows, what's the
2: song? Richard Manuel's dead. If I could get all my love, it's in their sets, guys. They're doing it again on this tour.
0: And Drive-By Truckers have a song called Danko Manuel. Uh, Head of Femur, great name. Song for Richard Manuel. Steve Fulbert has a song called Wild as the Wind, which is a tribute to Danko, which I used to have to play on the radio on Lightning mm-hmm. 100, Nashville's mm-hmm. progressive radio. That is a Lightning 100 song if I've ever heard one. It is. Mark Cohn listening to Levon, Robert Earl Keane, the man behind the drums. That's obviously about Levon too. Stepping in it, the ghost of Richard Manuel. And of course, this is the best thing in. For God's sakes, how cool we have to bring in a Beatle into the conversation, and it's the quiet one George who said while he was writing all things must pass, he imagined that Levon was singing that. Yeah, go listen to that. You'll you'll hear it.
2: Well I so one thing that struck me when I was looking at this, right, is that none of these songs are about Robbie. <laughs> you know, back to our point about they, Ro- are not about Robbie Robertson. So I did, I was on a mission. I was like, can I find one about Robbie Robertson? I will say that in the switch by the hold steady, Robbie Robertson, is name dropped along with another member of the band. And I forget which one, but so we get, we get, you know, the hold steady is a band who said they saw the last waltz and decided to start a band. Right. So that's, that's a great example. You know, I'm a big hold steady guy, me and your daughter, both at a hold steady concert separately, but I saw her there uh, very recently. Uh, So, who didn't care anything about that? Yeah, she didn't. She, she didn't there. care. But I, you know, like, at least you're, she's going to good places. You know what I mean? Like, she's hanging out right. around good, influential things. Uh, so, yeah. one, one other thing I wanted to to mention though about all these songs, right? So, I asked our producers, uh, Leif and Troy, both. I said, you know, what is? Are there other artists who are this heavily sung about? I've been thinking about this a lot this week, so I'm interested in your opinion and like artists who are examined in other people's music and the only one they could come back with that i thought was really good was hank williams
0: right it's hank and elvis that's my take is that you get hank and elvis by the way did i ever tell you about the rude street peters it was a band uh sounds familiar they were in college yeah 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 yeah. the, the drummer sat on a bucket uh, Cause they didn't have like a thing and they would get banned from places. So they would put up flyers with different names and it would say the rude street chili oh, right, peckers. Right, right, right. Where they would just change their name. And they had a song <laughs> called what would Hank say? And so it's a call and response. It'd be like, you know, this is happening. This is happening. What would Hank say? Well, it is interesting how, uh, how reflexive and how interesting and how pervasive talking about Hank Williams, senior And Elvis Presley is into people's songs. Oh, sure. It's just easy to to put that in there. things you don't remember uh, that you're like, oh, yeah,
2: there's a reference in that song. I never would have thought of that. Well, and (laughs) the other advantage Hank Williams has is he has a son who's written about 400 songs about him. Like his own son references him. And then other people reference Hank Jr. So there's generations of references about the
0: Williamses. Yeah. But there was nobody around writing these songs about Levon Helms's grandfather you know what right, I mean like right, right. this the band it, it shows the significance like of of the band right
2: now one thing that's interesting is you know if Robbie is not in this legendary reflection that keeps happening or where, where people are writing these new songs about these guys it, and Robbie's not a part of it Robbie was actually I mean you know he wasn't in the band. If you look at the full length of the band, he was only in at the beginning of it. But you also really can't talk about the band without talking about Robbie. And most people don't talk about the band without talking about Robbie. They sort of forget there was a period in the 90s where the band came back and put out several records.
0: Yeah, they had three records in the 90s alone. And what some people may not know is that in 2002... Robbie buys everyone's stake out except for Levon. So Robbie has gotten to control the narrative to a large the extent. The timing
2: on this is very unclear. Because he talks about in testimony that he was talking to them about this in the mid-70s because the guys wanted money. So I don't know if it didn't become official until later because I've also read that it was as late as two thousand two. But there is definitely a point where he buys and we'll come back to this. He buys out the dudes. Uh because they would rather have the cash, which, you know, we now see artists doing all the time. But it's interesting because since he did get ownership, like he's able to do things like get this movie made about his version of the story. So it, they mm-hmm. make, he writes testimony and then they make a film about it. I also read this week that he was in the middle of writing a memoir about the second part of his life because testimony ends in 76 it ends with the last waltz so mm-hmm. you don't get any of the filmmaking and the scoring and all that stuff that happens in the 80s 90s and all the way up to now so yeah i very very interesting stuff i mean i i do think there's a little bit of this like he who writes history controls the past that happens mm-hmm. Yeah, because his voice definitely gets more amplified. But then you go to the message boards and everyone's like, fuck Robbie Robertson. So, I mean, I don't even know if that's true. Uh, But again, I've already mentioned this testimony, 2016. It's unbelievable. And I honestly do think some of it is actually unbelievable. But regardless of that, it's absolutely riveting. And we are going to reference it going forward.
0: Yeah, so maybe we talked about Brian and I were talking about like this that the band is an artist, artist, and have not kept their own pace in the wider recollections of the 60s and 70s rock and roll landscape. But to talk about the band at all, you have to talk about another freaking rock and roller. And I'm so excited that this is happening. And He's been forgotten first, and it wasn't for like Rhino putting out these compilations in the early 90s where I was like, oh my gosh, I'm getting to have this stuff on CD because the band doesn't happen without Ronnie Hawkins and the hall.
2: I feel like he's totally forgotten. Totally forgotten. And we get to talk about Arkansas, Holler. Uh, A lot of folks who listen to to this show know, if you've heard me talk for hours on end, that I have... I spent formative years in the state of Arkansas, in Ronnie Hawkins' hometown in Fayetteville. He is a Fayetteville High School graduate,
0: yeah. which uh,
2: I did not know. I will say, living in Fayetteville for a long time, I never saw a sign that said, home of Ronnie Hawkins. Uh, and he meets did- a guy from farther south in the state, from,
0: from what
2: is it, Turkey Foot?
0: Uh, Levon Helm. Did they did they fix the sign thing by the way Brian is there a sign for Ronnie I that's a really good question I
2: haven't been back to Fayetteville in a long time I recently went visited another part of the state that I hadn't been to in, in almost 2 decades but I haven't gone back to Fayetteville I am very curious to check around and see if there is a Ronnie Hawkins sign it feels like in the last 20 years they would have had to have fixed that
0: Yeah so but hey so back to back to the story so we mentioned we mentioned Hank Senior earlier so who knows if what we're about to say here is actually true, but Ronnie Hawkins had his own mythology that he spun like a spider web, that one of his first live performances came when he was 11 and he was supposed to be, there was supposed to be this Hank performance, but Hank was too drunk, which is a very easy story to tell because it happens a lot. <laughs> so probably
2: it might um, check out.
0: You know, not as much as No Show Jones, but it does. So his band, the Drifting Cowboys, invited members of the audience to get on stage and sing. And Ronnie said that he got up and did that. And he did Burl Ives songs with the band. Brian, did I ever tell you about my (laughs) granddaddy Clyde who hated Burl Ives? I was going to say, I don't even
2: know where this is going, but just granddaddy Clyde. I honestly do
0: think we've maybe talked about this, but refresh my memory. I do, too. I remember being like he he they moved to Lewisburg him and Gongi, my grandmother and I remember being in the house and we were watching have a holly jolly like where it's Burl I singing the the Rudolph like he's the 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 narrator of the Rudolph thing oh he is that's right and all during it, Granddaddy Clyde would be like, goddamn Burl Ives. And I never knew why he didn't like Burl Ives.
2: You never found out? You never
0: got there? No. He just, his goddamn Burl Ives. It's just all I knew what to do is just to repeat that. You thought
2: thing. for a long time his first name was goddamn.
0: Goddamn Maybe. Burl
2: Ives. Uh, so, I mean, I was a young kid. That, that's a that's a great story. Uh, and And also a great story, the Ronnie Hawkins, Hank Williams story, whether or not it's true, but it is a great example. It doesn't matter because it's a great example of how larger than life Ronnie Hawkins was. This was the persona he was about cultivating. And it's interesting to make this connection here between Robbie Robertson and Ronnie Hawkins from the mythology standpoint, because you can make the argument that everything Robbie learned about spinning his own mythos, he might've picked up from his first mentor, which of course was Ronnie Hawkins.
0: Yeah. And to hear Ronnie Hawkins tell it, he ran bootleg alcohol. He joined the army because that's where he fell in love with black musicians. He got involved to be to work at Sun Records, to be in the house band. He invented the moonwalk, which was called the camel walk. Look yeah, this is, it this up. is wild. It, it's a real fucking thing. So Ronnie Hawkins used to flip
2: yeah. upside down and stuff like he would yes. like he was a wild man on stage. I don't know why rock and roll memory has just completely wiped him out, but uh, crazy stuff. Go Go look it up
0: yeah yeah please look up the the camel walk um and so all this is part of this and it also is a tale of him recruiting a drummer which we mentioned earlier who is from turkey trot
2: turkey trot not turkey foot yeah so levon himself actually has told this story so this might be more true according to him ronnie drove a model a out to the the family cotton farm that levon lived on to negotiate an agreement with levon's parents for him to join this band And the negotiation included that Levon had to graduate from high school. Interestingly, graduating high school was a requirement for Levon, not a requirement for Jamie Robertson, who will later, just a few years later, because he's a little younger than Levon, he will try out to be in the Hawks when he is
0: 15
2: years old. And let me just go ahead and put this here, that the entire length of what you think of as the core period of the band I was my daughter and I were talking about this earlier because I was, of course, you know, this is the problem with being my kid. You have to hear all these stories before I tell them to you, Murdoch. <laughs> and so we were talking about Robbie Robertson and I said, you know, the crazy thing is the last waltz happened when he was like 34. Mm-hmm. Like that's it, you know? And I, I'm just thinking like all of the things, all of the rooms, all of the people, all of the songs, they come before he's like 34, 35 years old, which is crazy
0: yeah and so we're talking about like that that connection is really with robbie is because the hawks played toronto in the late 50s and that's where robbie grown up so robbie has a band called the suede's kind of cool name and they'll open and they start hanging around with them while they're in town for a residency he'll write some songs to pitch to ronnie hawkins and they get recorded. And a year later, when the Hawks need a new guitar player, Robbie will buy a bus ticket from Toronto to frickin' Arkansas and try to convince and earn his way in.
2: There is this amazing story that opens testimony. It's literally like the first two pages of the Robbie Robertson book where he explains this idea of pitching songs to Ronnie Hawkins, Ronnie Hawkins accepting the songs, and then him getting like acetate. Of the songs and it said and it has the songwriting credit under the song which is foreshadowing of songwriting credit right and it has Robertson slash and it's like some other name on both of the songs and what he finds out is that that is the alias that they use at roulette records for Morris Levy so Morris Levy has a fake name that he puts on all the records and he goes well that's what I learned about songwriting publishing and that's like the opening of testimony which is a little bit of a middle finger you know to start the book being like listen it's always been a shifty business motherfuckers uh, yeah now part of the question around why a lot of our audience may not know who Ronnie Hawkins is does lie in the fact that they basically decide to move to Canada so Levon's from Arkansas Ronnie's from Arkansas they figure out it's easier to do things in Canada and they, they just do well so they relocate up there and because that happens they have to put together a new version of the Hawks. They had a bunch of Americans in the band. They moved to Canada and they slowly reformed the
0: group. Right. And that becomes Robbie Robertson, obviously Rick Danko, Richard Manuel and Garth Hudson.
2: And as you can tell from the few stories we've already alluded to about Ronnie Hawkins, huge personality, eventually Levon will lead a revolt and the whole band will leave him and no longer be, well they actually will be the Hawks, but no longer will they be Richie Hawkins Hawks or Ronnie Hawkins Hawks.
0: Right. They would book themselves as Ronnie Hawkins and the Hawks. And some nights Ronnie wouldn't show up. They would just be the Hawks. So he was actually working on making it some sort of review where he would reap profits and not always have to perform like fucking Kiss, but look how this kind of worked out because he was on the outs anyway.
2: Yeah, I mean, they were just pissed. And, they, like, at one point, he makes a rule, like, the, the straw that breaks the camel's back, this is according to Robbie, is that at one point, he tells one of them, I think it's Rick, that his girlfriend can't come to the shows anymore because she's distracting him from, like, being good on stage. And they're like, fuck you, dude. And
0: there well, had been... You've never, you've never used that? I'm just <laughs>
2: and so... They, they just think it's, they're like, okay, listen, this is stupid. And so they decide to, um, to, to jump out of there. Now, the, the thing that was beneficial is that because they had been covering for Ronnie Hawkins, who was just like not showing up sometimes and stuff, they all became very good musicians and most of them pretty good vocalists because they would take turns and sing different songs and that sort of stuff.
0: Yeah. And one thing to point about Ronnie Hawkins and the Hawks before we move on from, from Ronnie is that, The time period in which they make their ascension, it's the early 60s. So this is pre-British invasion. So in the wider narrative of rock history, if you're a listener of the, the show, this is where rock's almost dead. We talked about this during the Jerry Lee Lewis episode.
2: But at the same time, as rock is dying in America, Robert Zimmerman shows up in New York City's Greenwich Village in 1961, and folk music is becoming a
0: big thing. And after the Hawks split from Ronnie, they go out as Levon and the Hawks to limited success. But Robbie Robertson is hanging out with their friend John Hammond Jr. one day. And according to Robbie, will, quote, stop by in, quote, John's friend's recording session. And that just happens to be Dylan recording like a Rolling Stone. Great example See? of how ridiculous this narrative is. That he's just right.
2: like, and then my buddy John Hammond Jr., who also probably deserves an episode, that guy was in a lot of rooms too. But yeah, yeah let's just stop in at Bob Dylan's recordings. And, and he's like, he's like, and then I heard the strains of Like a Rolling Stone, and it was like nothing I'd ever heard before. Uh, it, in a few months, Robbie's going to get a call from Bob Dylan after this chance encounter. And, and the way Robbie tells the story is he's just like, Bob wants to meet with you, like, you know, some intermediary calls him. The Newport Folk Festival had happened. Now, remember, at the Newport Folk Festival, the band that is backing Dylan is the Butterfield Blues Band. Mm -hmm. Now, what's happened, though, is since that day, Dylan has decided he wants to tour with an electric band. And so Bob basically asks uh, Robbie if he will come and be his guitar player.
0: Yeah, and in testimony, Robbie, the memoir, Robbie writes a large portion of it as a love letter of sorts to to Levon. And in this moment, he claims that he did not want to entertain this proposition from Bob without bringing at least Levon along. So,
2: to speed up the story, Robbie and Levon do play a couple gigs with Bob as a test. And when Bob asks them to be permanent, they they both say they're not going to leave the Hawks. They're like, these are our guys. The o- and they almost as,
0: almost as a dare
2: say, the only way we're going to come along with you is if you bring everybody else. And so Bob says, okay.
0: Yeah, and this is how the Hawks become the band that tours with Dylan when he goes electric. It, it needs to be established
2: what these shows were like for the band. Uh, you know, Dylan going electric is now referred to as sort of a cultural touchstone or a shorthand for redefining a career. But this was a, this was a real thing. Now, we talked about this in episode 93. Uh, and we go deep in that episode on whether or not the Newport Folk Festival performance was manufactured. I don't know if you remember this, but we talk about this at length. There is this theory. There's a guy who's written a book on it that basically that didn't really happen. And it's been misunderstood and sort of commoditized as, as a talking point about Dylan. But that theory aside, the folk movement was a serious movement born out of serious thinkers and poets and people who were very passionate about protecting what they thought was right.
0: Right. And this is from the Britannica, Encyclopedia Britannica, (laughs) where when I was a kid, I learned what my mandibula was. I'm sorry if you don't know that freaking weird commercial. Okay, wait. It's okay. Based on tradition... I'm going to read this and help... Let me read this. Based on traditional... American musical forms and steeped in the populist politics of the 1930s, the folk music revival of the 1960s was meshed with the ongoing civil rights movement and thrived on topical songwriting, the pursuit of, quote, authenticity, in quote, lay at the heart of the revival and as such it was generally believed that real folk music was played only on acoustic instruments. Folk purists had little respect for rock and roll, which most regarded as crassly commercial. And remember, Dylan's a
2: poster boy for this movement. And so on this tour, he does a set where he comes out by himself, and he plays the acoustic guitar. And then the second half of the show, he comes out with the Hawks. And Robbie recounts in testimony that it was incredibly intense every night for that entire
0: tour. Because people stuck around... Just to be jerks, to let people let their displeasure know they threw stuff, they yelled stuff, they attempted to rush the stage, like bleak conditions for a band of really talented musicians who came up playing blues and dance music in clubs, right? Yeah, I mean, and that's the thing about Ronnie
2: Hawkins. We haven't really talked about what sort of music it was, but so often they were playing R&B.
0: They were playing music you danced to,
2: right? And there was a dance floor, and they were playing, you know, longer sets. It was it was a different style of thing, especially to then smack up against the folk movement, and it's too much for Levon, so he ends up leaving in the middle of the tour, and goes and works on an oil rig, or at least tries to. That's that's a that's a real story. I, I will say that in reading testimony, I'm I'm maybe most fascinated by Dylan and this persistence that he has during this time period. I mean, it's persistence he is perpetuating with some pretty unhealthy habits. And, you know, there's a lot of speculation about what sort of drugs he was doing during this period, amphetamines and otherwise, to sort of keep himself going. Robbie alludes to this a little bit in testimony, and it will lead to his temporary undoing, as we have talked about on the show before.
0: Yeah, and that is episode 93. And that is the motorcycle accident when that happens. That may or Bob may not will... have
2: happened. Was it really a motorcycle accident?
0: Yes, that's right. Was it really a motorcycle accident? Bob will recover in Woodstock, New York, and this location becomes key in the future of this band called The Band. Right. So
2: <laughs> let's real quickly bring another player into this. Uh, specifically for our discussion today, I think we need to talk a little bit about Albert Grossman.
0: Mm-hmm. yeah. For sure, it's Dylan's manager, later the manager of the band, uh, who who which becomes part of Robbie's songwriting scandal, right? But Albert keeps encouraging the guys from the band to go up to Woodstock and find a place to live and record there instead of being in New York. Yeah, there's literally
2: Robbie and his. He's getting serious with this woman who he spends most of the first half of his life, well more than first half of his life, with Dominique, and they are gonna settle somewhere in New York City. And then Grossman gets in their ear and is like, "Come up here, where because Grossman gets really into I believe it's specifically Bearsville, New York, and tries to turn it into a music hangout place in upstate New York." And I don't know how that's going now. Um,
0: they they were recording records there in the nineties, dude. So yeah, I so he, I mean,
2: he made a studio and the band will record there, and he he was like buying restaurants and doing all sorts of stuff to try to make Bearsville happen, but. He gets, He convinces the guys from the band, why don't you come up to upstate New York and stay up here? Now, remember, this is the mid-60s, so the Woodstock Music Festival isn't a thing. People don't know Woodstock for music yet. And part, I mean, especially to hear Robbie tell it, part of the reason you know Woodstock to be associated with music is because they went up there because of the band and Dylan. Like, mm-hmm. that's the people who put that together were like, well, there's an allure here because we have this story, this narrative of these guys who have been making music up here. It's also how the, the band gets their name, because they're the only band in that area. <laughs> and if this, is, this is a true story. So it becomes a thing when the band will go out on their own. We're skipping ahead for just a second. But when they go out on their own, they keep asking them, like, what are we going to name you? What are we going to name you? At one point, Levon wants to be called the Crackers. Uh, mm. Yeah, and that almost happens. And they are just really resistant to having a regular name. And what they find out happens in upstate New York is that they'll go to the grocery store, they'll go to the diner, they'll go anywhere, and they'll hear people whisper from across the room, hey, that's Robbie, or hey, that's Rick. He's in the band. And they just call them the band because it's like the firehouse. Like, there's just one of them in this tiny town. And yeah. th- and they they go to Albert Grossman and go, this is sort of funny. What if we were just the band? Because that's what everybody calls us up here. And they love how uh, you know slightly antagonistic that that is. But this is how we
1: get to Big Pink. That's right. Are you looking for a good rock and roll book? Do you watch a ton of rock and roll documentaries like me? Well, that's why I started the Rock Talk Studio Podcast, to be the place to go for previews, reviews, and recommendations on rock and roll books, documentaries and movies every first tuesday of the month the rock talk studio gets you caught up on all the latest and points out where to go for the good stuff every 15 minute podcast explores the world of rock and roll books docs and movies from every possible angle to leave you with a no doubt decision on where to spend your time and money fan or just casual fan or maybe you're on the fence and you're looking for something new to check out either way i got you covered bonus episodes features interviews with talent like New York Times best-selling author Alan Paul, who just came on the show to discuss his new Allman Brothers book Brothers and Sisters. Join me, Big Rick, every first Tuesday of the month as I host the Rock Talk Studio podcast, the ultimate review of rock and roll books, documentaries, and movies.
2: I gotta ask you, have you seen the VBRO listing? Yeah, you sent it to me. (laughs) Dude, I I legit want to road trip to big pig could that be a thing that me and you do it's only 12 hours from where we live
0: i mean i i, I definitely kind of want to go it i think we can see it.
2: A, a producer life is in i don't even
0: have to ask him
2: he will be in the car like if we just if you and i announce that we're going we it'll be like ken in the barbie movie Leif will pop out of the back he will be there we get I like if, i wonder if jordan would want to go jordan yeah okay so so he'll want to go, and also our buddy Dan will want to go. You think so? Yeah, and they I, all know I, each other. Well, Life doesn't, but Life will, will learn the rest of them. But everybody else, we all know each other. That's five guys. It's only like seven hundred bucks a night.
0: Yeah, the one thing that it got after I didn't look after you sent it to me it was like I wonder how many more places like this are on VRBO or Airbnb. Right, like the, I, like
2: legendary music houses.
0: Would yeah, you, like I don't want to go to like a Andrew. Like I don't want to go some architectural wonder no let's I don't go, go to the home
2: studios man
0: yeah i don't want to go to where somebody took a shit once it <laughs> was famous i want to go to some rock and roll thing you know, that's yeah, what i want to th- go
2: that's a that's a really good question and i'm sure that there are others but this is the one that's very obvious that you can just go find right now of course i put the listing in the show notes if you want to go to i didn't look to see how far out it's booked i wonder if it's just years in advance but big pink the, the property managers clearly know what they have because, like, can I just, can I read you the description?
0: Read this for everybody.
2: Okay, yeah. yeah. So, Big Pink, the house where Bob Dylan's basement tapes are recorded with his backup band, later now known as The Band, whose first album was actually called Music from Big Pink. Note, the basement is not included in the rental. <laughs> yeah. I love the fact that you can't go in the basement. What the yeah. fuck? What is in the basement? What have they done to the basement?
0: It's like you go to Graceland and you can't go upstairs, which is a real thing. But this yeah. is also like – it makes me think about the basement at the Alamo. Rest <laughs> in peace, Paul Rubens. We didn't get to say anything about Paul Rubens. I'm just going to say it now.
2: Um, yeah. I know. So our, for our Patreon subscribers, we, we did a little Paul Rubens tribute on Patreon, but we, we have not done anything regularly on the show what a rock and roll badass that guy was
0: yeah Uh, by the by the way do you know how much how many times people at the Alamo they have to deal with the fact that people ask them about the basement (laughs) because of that fucking movie (laughs) a lot I, I read about that that's the thing I read about from the Alamo they have to they have to entertain that question a lot
2: so continuing in this VRBO listing the updated dormer unit was Levon Helms bunk area back in the late 60s and then it goes into like great detail describing every everything about that area And then the main floor is a two-bedroom unit with a sunroom. This was Rick's room, Rick Danko's quarters. Again, goes on in great detail to describe everything. And then it also it just ends abruptly with this line: "There are several outside security cameras on the property,
0: (laughs) so don't come and do
2: weird shit because we're going to be
0: going to be watching you. Don't mess with Big Pink." And I have a love letter squeeze for all of our listeners who are listening right now. One more self referential side note about Big Pink and Us is that if you do remember in episode 133, and if you don't, we're telling you about it now, it's about pro wrestling. Oh my God. Lou Albano. The band NRBQ had <laughs> Lou Captain Lou Albano shoot a spoof commercial for their album and they shot it inside Big Pink. And I don't, I don't remember if we
2: t- mentioned this
0: meta part of this, but it was after
2: the people who owned it at that point when the band had it they sell it at one point in the late 70s and somebody else takes ownership and they rent it to a classical music label so the, it's actually, at the time that they do this, owned by – and I don't know if they just – like I forget in the research if they just didn't know what they were going to shoot there or whatever, but it's hilarious. Also, I think this ranks as the first time I've ever been able to move along the narrative of this show by just reading a rental listing. This may be – this is a real special moment in show history. True.
0: And then we got Captain Lou Albano and the rubber bands in his face back into back into this too. But anyway, back I, like. But the thing to understand about Big Pink is that in the aftermath of the supposed motorcycle accident, <laughs> Danko, Garth, and Richard move into the house. Robbie is, however, down the road. Dylan's nearby. They lure Levon back to the band from the oil rig, and they start recording in the basement, which you can't go to, on microphones. Borrowed from, no shit, Peter, (laughs) Paul, and Mary. These two massive musical outputs come to this. First, this is the basement tapes, the legendary Dylan bootleg for a long time. And after all of that is laid down, the band will then work on, though not record, the material that will become their first record, 1968's Music from the Big Pink.
2: Now, we're about to really start about who wrote... We're about to start talking about who wrote what. So it's worth pointing out that Dylan was part of writing three of the songs on Big Pink. You may know this if you're a big Dylan fan. Tears of Rage, This Wheel's on Fire, and I Shall Be Released, of course. And did you know that painting on the front of Music from Big Pink? That's a Bob Dylan original.
0: No, I didn't know that. That's totally weird. Um, Okay, so we talked about the songs earlier that are about the members of the band but let's talk about some proof we have in talking about in terms of the band influencing other bands and yeah bands. other musicians right right so clapton cites this album as what convinced him to quit cream and do something else and find some other sound i told
2: you isn't that insane totally he's, yeah, he's totally- said multiple times and there's this whole story and testimony that Clapton comes to hang out after this comes out. People just want to hang out with the guys in the band, and so and because they're in this place that nobody goes, right? So they're like, let's come up and see the magic of where you hung out with Dylan, and right? So Clapton comes and hangs out, and they be, they be say it's just like sort of weird.
0: <laughs> well, eventually. Well, eventually with we Clapton, you have just mounds and mounds and mounds of heroin and, and uh, Derek and the Dominoes, like at yeah. some point, yeah. it's eventually here in the early 70s, right? Harrison, George Harrison, cites this as something that really impressed him. Roger Waters called this, this is a quote. The second most influential record in the history of rock and roll after Sgt. Pepper and said that it, quote, affected Pink Floyd deeply, deeply, deeply. And rock historians often cite this record as the birth of a genre called Americana.
2: What, one more that I saw was uh, Tumbleweed Connection, Elton John, very clearly a nod to, to Big Pink. Mm.
0: Yeah. Uh, so First, I was thinking about Tumbleweed, the restaurant. I was like, the margaritas that don't have tequila? Oh, wait. Sorry. <laughs> We're back to music. Okay. Keep going. That's for only a very particular part of the country. Small,
2: okay. Small so uh, Americana. Let's talk about that for a second. It's weird because these dudes yeah. are from Canada. All of them except up. You, you, have, you have one American in the mix. Now, the response I've seen to this criticism is that the label of Americana just says it being understands and portrays the American experience, right? You don't have to be from America. Maybe, maybe you're actually better at understanding the American experience if you can view it as a slight outsider. So I don't know. But that, that is an interesting little thing to to think about. Right. Did, did, did the guys who birth Americana, were they not American? Or I mean, they're American. Right. They're North American, but they're not from the United States.
0: But it brings us to the question. Was most of this written by a Canadian or did Robbie Robertson kind of Canadian for sure steal all the songwriting credits from everyone, but definitely from the American in the band? Well, yeah. And so
2: it really comes down to Robbie versus Levon. I mean, that's right. That is more, the rest of the guys are part of it kind of, but they're the two strong personalities. And when you, here, I mean, because they're the first two Hawks, and when you hear Robbie talk about Levon, you know he says over and over in testimony that Levon's like a brother to him, and and that they were, you know, he owes everything to Levon in a lot of ways. So yeah, it's the next album though, the self-titled album that people call often called the Brown album.
0: Yeah, they try to record this in a studio and they can't get the everything going. So they rent Sammy Davis Jr.'s pool house. Which you can't make that shit up, right? So no. I, this shows a couple of things. The Number can, one. The, I, I'll tell you who can. The Candyman can. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it, this this illustrates. See what I did there? It, oh, oh God. my God.
2: It illustrates a few things. One, how much Big Pink influenced their thinking, right? Because they get to a point where they want to continually recapture this magic of home recording. I think the second thing it shows is how much sway and swagger they're starting to command. They, they literally are recording at the home mm-hmm. of a member of the Rat Pack. And so this yeah. idea of proximity to, to access and excess becomes part of the narrative when the band begins to deteriorate because they just all of a sudden they're getting all of this opportunity in front of them to, to have whatever they want.
0: Yeah, and this is also another moment where we start to see Robbie Robertson's influence start to take hold and we have maybe not have been incredibly clear about this but at the beginning this is Levon's band right Levon was the first one in the Hawks and when they leave Ronnie they are Levon and the Hawks yeah it's a good point
2: point. and what you're referring to also in terms of like wh- wh- what do you mean Robbie is is now really influencing the band he starts to get interested in producing and so they take a meeting with one producer. They just they they only interview one guy for Big Pink. It's a guy named John Simon, who Robbie meets on a film set, which is a foreshadowing of things to come for sure. Dan Dan Dan, and it's th- so they bring Simon along on the second album. But because he and Robbie have become pals, Robbie uses this as a as a chance to you know, and he'll sort of paint it as well. John started showing me stuff, but you know, a lot of people think he used it as a chance to really learn how to produce.
0: Right. And here's a quote from John uh, Simon himself. Quote, Robbie was hungry for knowledge and I showed him how to make an album from a technical point of view. End quote.
2: Fun fact about this record that I didn't know. It comes out four days before another little album called
0: Abbey Road. Oh, get out. I totally missed that part of it. Um, uh, Robert, this is a guy from The Village Voice as a how do you say it's like Chris-, Chris Gow, Chris- 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 Chris Gow um, from The Village Voice famously declared it better than Abbey Road and said an A plus record if I ever rated one. And man, that stings if you're the Beatles. Damn.
2: Uh so they're doing well, the band is. Two years, two records. What happens next? Right. So Bruce Eater penned the All Music Guide entry on the band, if you ever read All Music Guide. And I'm just going to pick up from the middle of that here because he sums it up well. Following the release of the second album, things changed somewhat within the group, partly owing to the pressures of touring and the public's expectations of quote-unquote genius and also to the growing press fixation on Robbie Robertson at the expense of the rest of the group. Gradually, exhaustion and personal pressures took
0: their toll. Yeah, and you mentioned earlier that Robbie's book came out in 2016. Levon's book came out in 1993.
2: He really got the word out first. I, you do wonder right. why it took so long for Robbie to have a response. So that, it, maybe it's because he didn't care. I don't know. So this is where the claims about Robbie being a bad guy get sort of cemented, right, in this Levon book. you would heard rumors about it, right? But the Internet wasn't really a thing. So it takes the publication of something. To then be covered by news outlets and people talk about it. And that's the book. The book is called the wheels on fire. Leave on helm and the story of the band. It does a few things. It places the blame for the band's breakup solely on Robbie. It accuses Robbie of conspiring with record companies to steal songwriting credits. Hmm. Mm. And then it makes claims that Robbie and Scorsese purposely conspire to use the last waltz to sort of position Robbie as the leader of the band.
0: It certainly looks like it when you watch, right? Um, There's a quote from the Levon book, and I'm going to read this to you here. After that, this is the Brown album, the 69 record. The level of the group's collaboration declined, and our creative process was severely disrupted. There was confusion. It's important to recognize that Robertson's role as a catalyst and writer, but I blame Albert Grossman for letting him or giving him or making him take too much credit for the band's work. The idea of the band as a collective is key to their mythology and their legacy. You'll read all sorts of deep writing about how what made them unique and is how it separates their five voices or all that. But so that sort of maneuvering would feel like a special sort of betrayal in this context. Now, all those years later is when like, I mean, it's a long time after Levon's book. Robbie releases testimony. His version of the story is that the other guy's especially his brother, Levon, got so far into drugs, he had no choice but to be that guy who steps in and leads the band.
2: Well, yeah. Drugs and alcohol in general access to excess become key components to the disintegration of these partnerships. It's, it's hard to argue that it's not that when you look at the evidence that surrounds this. I, I was deep in the message boards, as mentioned, and on a lot of threads, you basically see two reactions. You either see Robbie. Robbie is an asshole. Yes. Or I read testimony and Robbie might be an asshole, but his side of the story is fairly compelling. Yeah. <laughs> so but which,
0: but go, ahead, go on.
2: Which is probably like, where probably where I said. Okay, for instance. In
0: between the truth. Yeah. Le- the truth. Let
2: exactly. me give you an exhibit A. Let me give you an exhibit A. If you dig into the show notes, you're going to find a link and you're going to be like, what is this? This is to a car collector enthusiast website. Why, why is there a link in the middle of this episode about the band about classic cars
0: because we are such fucking dorks and we love to do this but keep going PHS collector car world that is that is the site and this site has a full feature
2: on the classic cars that were wrecked by different members of the band over a period yes. of years in, in fact yes. it, at one point I honestly considered reframing this episode and calling it the band versus their cars <laughs> And then I thought it was a little disrespectful, but I, let me just, let me read one small section of this write up as an example. Richard Manuel was no slouch for wrecking cars. He totaled his 47 olds and chipped his tooth on the steering wheel in the process. And when the band started making real money from the big pink album, he treated himself to a 1969 Pontiac Grand Prix. It was a sweet ride with a vinyl top and he's shown here. This picture is on this site. You should go look at it because it's amazing. He is shown here posing with The Wreck and his gold album for Stage Fright. The nice. album was released in August and went gold in October. Somewhere between that time, Richard plowed the front end of his Grand Prix so hard that he wrote it off.
0: Yeah, rock and rollers are pretty great at wrecking cars. It's unbelievable, dude.
2: So if you check, I and mean, we're not going to jump down this hole, but like, there are some massive car wrecks that happen with this band. Not one. like. Mm-hmm at least two, really more like four or five. Like, there's a lot of wrecks that happen. And there's one where, again, this is Robbie's version, but this is pretty well documented. Robbie was leaving town on business, doing something, and his wife and, was it Richard? One of them went out with his wife in the car and was like, I want to drive. And they'd been drinking, and then he slams it up against, like, Again, the other thing, when you read about all these car wrecks, everyone's like, well, they lived in upstate New York on these roads that weren't developed, and they were ego-driven rock stars who thought they were sort of infallible. And again, when I mentioned the age thing, there's a point in testimony where you're like three-quarters through, and and he mentions that he was 24. And I was like, oh, my God. Like, all of this happened so fast, relatively. You know, I mean, not, I mean... It, it doesn't because he joins the Hawks when he's 15. So he's already like almost 10 years in at that point of the story. But this insane stuff where they're going around with Dylan and they're getting booed every night and they're making this album. I mean, that's they're in their early 20s. So it, it is. It's pretty amazing. It, it's worth going back to the Levon quote you read for a second, though. I do want to touch on that for a second because he makes sure to point out this connection between Robbie and Albert Grossman.
0: Yeah, and if you just need a quick too long didn't read about Albert Grossman, here's Colonel Tom Parker entering in stage left for Dylan or the band.
2: Yeah, so it's interesting, okay? I will say this, as much as we've been mentioning testimony, Robbie does not really speak ill of people in testimony. It reads to me like a guy at the end of his life who is trying to smooth over some beef, who just wants to tell my story and make everybody look okay and not Ruffle a bunch of
0: feathers. We called that trying to get into heaven when I was. (laughs) Go ahead. I don't know what you. I don't know what you churchy people called it, but, but that's what is. That's what is non-churchy people. I
2: will say, it. if you're reading testimony, and this is the only time you've ever heard of Albert Grossman, you're going to be like, "Stand up, dude! What a guy! Yeah. Like he comes off as like great A loyal best friend material. It, and he and he and Robbie are pretty close for a long time. And if you if you know the details of rock history, if you've listened to this show, you can read testimony and hear and see parts in it where you're like. Well this is clearly the part where he indirectly kills Janice Joplin and Robbie just flies right through it like he doesn't he doesn't question it nothing right This is where he falls out with Dylan and he quits working for Bob and Robbie's just like, you yeah, yeah Bob and Albert just yeah they weren't working together. And then when they stop working together and when Robbie steers the band towards David Geffen in the 70s, Albert's disapproval in the end of their working relationship are downplayed. You But you barely get anything about that. So whatever his reason for doing all this, some of which may be highly justifiable, especially if he's trying to get into heaven, it it definitely doesn't help the reader not think that they were pretty closely aligned.
0: But so we, we had these two books, these two famous musicians. Can we break down the beef, really, between Levon and Robbie a little more closely? <sighs> yeah,
2: I, so we sort of did by saying what was in Levon's book, but let's let's break it down a little bit more. You heard it outlined... Maybe a better version of this breakdown is what gets offered uh, when the writer Jeremy Roberts gets to do a sit down interview with Joe Joe Forno Jr. This is who we're going to go to as a source for a moment.
0: Yeah, he Forno Jr. is the guy who manages them after '86, and he manages the band, and I believe he controls the assets of the guys personally. Yeah, like as he's well. become sort of their personal managers, I think too. Yeah. It sounds like red flags everywhere. But anyway.
2: Well, I, 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 don't, I don't know much about him. It seems like he's all right. He, he, here's an interesting thing about him, though. He barely knows Robbie, right? So remember when we're reading through what he says, that this is a guy whose stake is not with Robbie. His stake is with Rick, Levon, and Garth.
0: The other three. Yeah, yeah
2: because Richard by 86, Richard is dead. So Rick, Levon, and Garth, managed
0: by Joe Forno, Jr., and even this guy is on the record as saying this is a quote. I know Levon died of throat cancer, but his resentment for Robbie took him to the grave. Just stop. And I, that is wild. I mean, that is yeah. a
2: statement to say about yeah. somebody. It's that a heavy you, thing.
0: You, yeah. know, you know what killed him? How pissed off he was. That's crazy.
2: <laughs> I mean, that's, that's literally yeah. what he says right.
0: right there. Right, right. It's not throat cancer. It's that Robbie Robertson killed him. I'm not saying he wasn't right about some of his grievances, but he should have let some of that go. He was so bitter in the end. No one carried a grudge like Levon did. Let's break down the complaints one by one so we can maybe offer some perspective. Okay,
2: well, yeah, her. let's go back. Let's talk specifically about the songwriting because that's what the letters about.
0: Yeah, so here's a quote from Levon about that. So when the Brown album came out, I discovered that I was credited for writing half of Jemima Surrender, and that was it. Richard was a co-writer on three songs. Rick and Garth went uncredited. And Robbie was credited on all 12 songs. Someone had pencil whipped us it was an old tactic divide it's an amazing amazing term pencil whipped. yeah pencil whipped is a great term so
2: don't forget the songs did a really good piece on this like a decade ago you can find it in the show notes they basically make the same argument that joe Forno, forno jr will go on to make which is that basically this all this whole controversy lies in how you define songwriting I mean, that's basically what it is. Robbie goes out of his way in testimony to paint this picture of how hard it became to manage the band and how to get the band members to contribute. He goes so hard in the paint in trying to illustrate this that he literally includes this whole passage where he's actively going to each of their houses and, like, knocking on the door and asking their input, and they're just ignoring him. Like, he says, Levon's watching the Razorbacks. And he just wants to talk about football. Like there's a lot of detail where it's very heavy handed and clearly in response to these criticisms. Like if you know the criticisms about Robbie, you can read testimony and be like, okay, this is him refuting all of these different things without coming out and saying, I'm refuting these things.
0: Yeah. And I want to continue. Here's more leave on. So here's a quote from him. Our publishing was split far from Fair, and I told Robbie it had to be fixed. I told him that he and Albert ought to try and write some music without us because they couldn't possibly find the songs unless we were all searching together. I caution that most so-called business moves had fucked up a lot of great bands and killed off whatever music was left in them, In quote, ouch. Now, this is a Robbie quote that
2: comes years later, but basically stands up against that from Levon, where he says, here's something I've not said before. To this day, and I believe this is a 2019 interview in Salon of all places. It's in the show notes. I share the publishing and songwriting credit with Levon. The other guys said they wanted to sell their part of the publishing, which we're going to talk about. When we started out, everyone was supposed to write songs when they didn't. I thought they were being lazy, but I guess some people just can't write songs and some can Levon didn't write songs. I gave him credit on some songs because he was around Garth was a great musician, but he didn't write Ringo Starr doesn't write songs. Charlie Watt doesn't write songs and they don't share publishing credit with the other guys in their groups. After 16 years together, Levon never once mentioned the songwriting and when it came up, I was generous about it. I did stuff I didn't have to do, and I did it to be a good friend. It was 10 or 15 years after that when Levon was struggling financially where he started blaming someone else for what happened to him. So Robbie's counterpoint to this is he became broke, and he he made this a thing because he was mad and he needed money, which is a pretty big statement to make about somebody.
0: Well, right, right. And now fast forward, Levon dies and then Sandy will keep Robbie from performing at the Grammy tribute for him, even though it is said that Robbie actually visited Levon before he died.
2: Which, you know, is a pretty crazy story too, that he goes to his deathbed and then his wife still won't let him do any sort of public tribute to him. So, I mean, yeah, it it it's all pretty wild. Um, there's there's like a little bit more to this Joe, you know, when, when you talk about publishing, like it's tricky because there's the songs and then there's the publishing, which I don't I think they might be slightly different, but the band's publishing company was originally supposed to be a democratic split at 20 percent.
0: Here's Joe Forno Jr.'s explanation here. There's so much history behind Levon and Robbie's disagreements. I understand Levon's argument about his songwriting participation in the band. Robbie was a young teenager from Toronto, and all of a sudden he found himself down in the Deep South for the first time. Levon was the one who taught him about the Civil War and drove him to the frickin' library to learn more. In today's uh, age, Levon would have received credit.
2: Now, this is specifically in reference to the night they drew Old Dixie down, which is always the centerpiece of this argument because Levon is from the South and Robbie is from Canada. And it's a great example of what constitutes songwriting, right? Like, it does Levon talking Robbie through what the confederate states were like and then literally take him to the library which is a story that robbie tells about levon asking levon to take him to the library so he can learn more about the confederacy like that's a real thing that happened does that deserve to be financially compensated levon's not really saying i wrote the lyrics or even i changed the melodies he's just saying i was involved in the construction
0: i think a lot of random fans might think there's no way that robbie could write That song, given its subject matter, not only is he Canadian, he's also um, indigenous, like he's an Indian. He's a Native American, essentially. Yeah. Um, They want to frame it as thievery. Right, as appropriation.
2: Maybe maybe the best explanation is is this observation. This is more Joe Forno, Jr. Robbie learned his craft the old-fashioned way at the Brill Building on... Broadway, where many iconic pop songwriters like Carole King and Neil Diamond and Bacharach and Lieber and Stoller put pen to paper and earned songwriting credit. Levon didn't think it was going to come out that way once the band began workshopping music from Big Pink and their subsequent albums. He thought it was going to be a democratic songwriting process.
0: Right. So there is a beef around all the songwriting. And to answer the question at hand in the letter that Patty wrote us, did Robbie Robertson steal a songwriting credit? And I think putting it that way is very debatable. Do you, do you think? Yeah, I'm gonna go there. But what are what are Levon's other grudges here? Because there's there's beef. Beef. Well, they're related, right? So one of them is
2: that Bobby or Robbie buys out everyone's publishing, which we've already touched on, except for Levon's. In testimony, Robbie makes this sound like the guys basically ask him to do this. Now, of course, when you talk to Levon's, what well, you've already mentioned, Levon's wife. Uh, she will be on the record being like, "Nope, Levi never sold and would never have sold, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you, a lot of things you read, make it sound like Robbie was sneaky about this, but that does not seem to be from music journalists. That seems to be from fans who I don't necessarily think have the whole story. Um, and when you, you mentioned this whole story about Levon dying, Sandy, keeping Robbie from performing at the Grammy thing. And, I I think part of this all leads to this third part of the grudge, which is
0: all around the last waltz. The last waltz. Yeah. Um, Did you ever know that thing about how there was like cocaine on Neil Young's nose and they had to, they had to kind of fix that up and. (laughs) (laughs) No. (laughs) Yeah. I think, I, I think a pal of ours told me that once that that was actually, they had to fix that up, which blew, which, of course, got me wanting to watch that again. <laughs> um, of course, The Last Waltz is has Scorsese's name on it. And Robbie Robertson has his name all over Scorsese's work post.
2: Yeah, Last I mean, Waltz. we see how it we see how it breaks down later. Right. I mean, definitely there was a relationship forged there that will serve him for the rest of his life. I mean, all the way for the rest of his life. Robbie's version of this story about The Last Waltz, though, is this. He he basically says, I knew the band was going to implode because the drugs were killing everyone. And we were on the road, and they do this rowdy tour with Dylan uh, where they go back out with Dylan in the mid-70s. And at that point, he's like, the excess was just way too much. They were having trouble getting Richard on stage a lot of times. And he... Hatches this idea he 's also like has several kids at this point and and he 's like we could be like the Beatles in that we could just be a studio band because we all love to be in the studio we 've been creating these home studios our whole career we've and, you know it should be pointed out that didn 't happen that much at that point, so they also become purveyors of that and sort of forefathers of the this home recording sort of let 's take peter paul and mary 's mics into the basement. And so this is actually a quote. This is a quote from Robbie. It got to a place where I thought someone's going to die. It was being out there on the road, a wilderness in itself. In this period in the 70s, everywhere you went, people wanted to befriend you by having some kind of drug to give you. It was always a magnet pulling you somewhere and that's why the last waltz appealed to me. We had to get out of the way and not be so vulnerable. We didn't know anything about addiction. The band is in no way unique in this area. Every group was in the same boat.
0: And really, if you think about it from a business standpoint or a musician standpoint, to send them in the next period, any of them, this is how you do the major send-off, do this last concert.
2: Exactly. And when you also look at this from an historical perspective, again, Robbie's controlling the narrative because he controls most of the assets. But this all really, in retrospect, he looks smart.
0: Oh, well, yeah. I mean, absolutely. And he, the whole idea is that Robbie loves movies, he's been a film buff, and then he meets Martin Scorsese at a party, right? Yeah, so he and, they, they have a song in Mean Streets, I think, right? Isn't that like...
2: I have to go back and check the notes. But I, at I, some point, I think it's a Mean Streets-related thing, because they're slightly involved, where he meets Scorsese, and so he comes up with this whole... And there's all this stuff in the book where he has been... He, he's very careful to thread this needle about I was always into film but he gets into at some period in the in the early sixties or so like one of these bookstores in New York and buying uh film scripts like because they would just print them and he wanted to read them and see how they how that translates onto the screen so he's uh, always he's always had this obsession right
0: yeah and, and here I was gonna say here's another quote from Joe Forno about the last waltz right so Levon didn't get anything from the last waltz. He didn't get a penny, which was Robbie's idea in tandem with Scorsese. I remember this too, Brian, it went over budget. It was $600,000 over budget, which at the time must've been a lot. Levon booked the entire Kyoto hotel in San Francisco for his friends and family to come. All the band had to cover the room expenses. The band also got a $1.4 million advance from Mo Austin and Warner's. Warner Brothers to do another post-Last Waltz album, which never happened. So in total, they owed, count it, if you did the math, too late, $2 million. And as Joe Forno said, I still have those bills. I get the balance due statements every six months. It would go down to approximately 1.97 million, then 1.92 million, and so on. You could see there were royalties coming in from sales of the Last Waltz soundtrack and the showings of the company concert film, which you could go see. And they were paying off the debt that they owed, but that was a stinker, if you think about it.
2: Yeah, in a timeline note here. So they do the Last Waltz recording in the end of 76, so Thanksgiving of 76. And then they have this album that they still owe the other record label. And so they put out what is their last proper record in March of 77. And it's not until April of 78 that we get the recorded versions in the film, The Last Waltz. And this is, you know... The story sort of goes that they, they didn't officially say we're never going to play again. It was just a we're going to become a studio band and then they sort of faded out and they started working on other things. There will be one more performance where I think it's not very long after. I think it's in 78 where Danko or one of them is doing a solo performance and the rest of them show up and they like go on as the encore or something and play for a little bit. And then that's like the last time it happens with all of them. There is a story that floated around after this that at some point in the mid 90s I think they've almost got uh, they've almost got Robertson back to to come and do a tour there's like a big offer on the table and then they decide it's not enough money or something like that and of course at that point they don't have Richard Manuel anymore so it wouldn't have been a full reunion but you know it it it's a crazy story and I mean I, I don't know like after hearing all of this where do you sit on the Levon-Robbie, you know, controversy. Is there a side you think you lean on more than the other?
0: You know, e- even without evidence, I sort of feel like Robbie took a lot of credit for the so- songwriting that they- it wasn't his. Interesting. I'm not, like, I sort of feel that way without having, because, well, like, at this point... It's the a band is
2: quintessentially a, a group effort. I mean, that's how everybody wants to think of them. You know, and, and that is the mythology right. around them. So it's very hard to separate that. And that's why people just, I think, automatically get defensive out of their fandom. Because the whole idea of the band is that they're a collective. They, The way they model themselves, the way they took photos. the way, I mean, there's these famous photos where you don't see their faces. They're doing magazine covers that way. It was very much about we are a unit and... Then the narrative spins when they break up, there's somebody to blame. It's Robbie. Robbie's an egomaniac, et cetera, et cetera. I think the young man's version of when you hear this, the young man's response is I'm a leave on guy. And I think, you know, you get 40 and up and you're like, I don't know. Robbie might have had some good ideas, you know what I mean like from a, he was running a business. he was trying to keep everybody alive, you know like I it's it, it's a
0: tricky True. situation. It's a tricky situation yeah. for sure. sometimes sometimes the people that are on the drugs write the better songs though it,
2: it I don't have yeah, all yeah, I mean the for answers. sure for sure <laughs> I don't, it, we don't we don't answers. have all the answers. We did this in you know an hour. there is a, a, lots of scholarship on the band. If you want a deep dive. And go really deep. There is a show that has been publishing since 2019, I believe called the band colon history. That's a podcast. You can pick up wherever you like to download podcasts. They, I mean, they've been publishing in the last couple of months, And so you can go really, 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 really deep if this is what your appetite to learn more about them. Uh, If you want to get involved in the show, it's WeAreTheStoryGuys at gmail.com. Of course, if you want to support the show with your hard-earned dollar bills, you can do that. Patreon.com. We got fun content going up there all the time. Uh, Some random Goo Goo Dolls uh, content from last week that we had in the archives that was just from an old recording session. Uh, We threw that up there. You get stuff like that. You get a couple of extra episodes a month. Um, there's all sorts of goodies and, and a weekly newsletter. Please check that out. And then, of course, we still have tickets for you to see a Bourbon and Beyond. It's a four-day music festival in Louisville, Kentucky. It's coming up in just a month, a month from this week. Wow. Um, yep. So we'll be giving away those tickets soon. Go sign up now. You can find the links in the show notes. And what should people keep doing until next time, Murduck?
0: Keep telling stories. Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories is a Story Guys production. The show is produced and edited by Brian Eichenverter. Get more stories, hear more podcasts, and book the guys for your conference or house party at wearethestoryguys.com. Copyright Boy Have We Got Stories Productions. All rights reserved.